2021 saw wildfires grab headlines in Canada and around the world as seemingly every day a new blaze started somewhere. In Canada alone, well over 6,000 fires involving over 4 million hectares lit up the night skies and brought haze to the daytime clouds from coast to coast. Andrew Bates, crew lead of a forest fire ranger team and founder of the Canadian Wildfire Network, joined me to talk about the past, present and future of wildfire fighting in Canada. Tell me about the Canadian Wildfire Network, what it is and why you started it. So basically, I started the Canadian Wildfire Network because I saw that there is a distinct lack in uh, online representation for Canadian wildland firefighters. Um, basically, I put this website and uh, Instagram page together to uh, better represent us, advocate for us, um, to also deal with issues relating to uh, retention, uh, hiring, and I also just want to share stories because there's really we have a really rich history in Canada of uh, wildfire management. So essentially what I want to do is I want to connect people within the industry across Canada. And uh, I want to share those stories with the greater public. And those wildfire management stories go well back in Canadian history, correct? Yeah, I mean, the history of wildland fire, wildfire management really extends even before colonial times, right? Before Europeans. So indigenous people in Canada, they actually managed the landscape using fire uh, for several different reasons. One, namely to, um, to, to reduce the amount of fuel in the forest to avoid like catastrophic fires uh, rolling into their communities, uh, but also to help promote vegetation that was beneficial to them. So for food or medicine, and then it would also promote food for the wildlife that it would even hunt. And so in comes uh, like the colonial period of our history, and we've actually managed fire in a completely different way, mostly through direct suppression. That's really impacted how we see fire now uh, currently and how we manage it. Uh, with this history of suppression, we've actually ended up having a increase of fuel loading, which is just uh, a term we use to describe just an increase of dead, dry wood mass that can blow up at any given time. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, with the advent of climate change, that's made things a lot more difficult for us too, right? So we have the combination of these fuel buildups due to a history of suppression and climate change making many of our environments in the north here uh, much drier and much hotter so as a result we've been experiencing in the last few years more frequent and much more intense fires that have become more and more difficult to manage so the indigenous fire stewardship yes was, was based on burning proactively is that what i'm Hearing? That's absolutely it. Yeah. So there's a, it's much more of a proactive, holistic approach to fire management. There's been big changes actually very recently. Uh, British Columbia has um, has put in a lot of uh, money into uh, more proactive management, especially given the year they had last season, you know, with Lytton, BC and all the floods. They've actually shifted to a, a full year round BC wildfire service which means that uh, they can dedicate a lot more time to 
doing manual forest thinning around vulnerable communities, or uh, they can actually dedicate more time to doing prescribed burns and even helping out with uh, floods in the future. Uh, so that's really exciting. It, it's much more of a proactive approach and holistic approach. Um, when people burn on the landscape purposefully, it'll actually bring a bring more life to certain ecosystems. So for example, here in the Boreal Forest, where we live in a pyrogenic ecosystem, pyro meaning phyrogenic meaning, uh, or genesis meaning uh, like to, 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 to give birth from or to come from, you know, we, we have a forest that relies on fire for rejuvenation. And in areas where we've seen large fires come through, it's been noted that you know, moose populations, for example, will will skyrocket because of the increase of, of, of berries that come out. And as a result, you know, we'll find more uh, wolf populations, higher density of wolf populations because there's, of course, more moose. Fire can really, on the surface, it can definitely be a, a jarring thing for many people to see, especially when it makes the news. But in, in, in a lot of circumstances, it's, it's very much a, a rejuvenating process for the forest. So it's not just climate change, but our management practices that may be contributing to our problems. Yeah, it's definitely a combination of the two. Um, I like to say that, well, you often see in the wildfire world, we often see the the fire triangle, right? You need fuel, oxygen, and then a spark to uh, create wildfire. But really, it should be (laughs) a fire square with the fourth corner being policy. Because that seriously affects how we we manage uh, fires and how we respond to them. For example, what's the problems with our current policies then? It's up up until fairly recently, uh, the policy has been focused on uh, suppression only, right? And the more we suppress fires, the more fuel buildup we have because uh, forests just get denser and denser and denser. And it's a really difficult thing for uh, agencies to balance because our number one priority is human safety. Right. So so when we have businesses or communities within these ecosystems, we need to put those out immediately. Right. Because we don't we don't want to risk, you know, the lives of anyone or, or, or anyone's businesses. Yeah. So uh, we have to approach it in a, a very careful way. Right. Uh, so, for example, in Ontario, often what we do is we'll assess the fire and its risk. And for example, in the far north. Uh, if it's not burning anywhere near a community, we'll just let it run its course because that's just the natural cycle of things. But for example, if it was anywhere close to some sort of mining operation, forestry operation, or any community, it'll be out as soon as we can get it out. Okay. So the suppression is very much reactive then. Absolutely. Yes. And And the pro, as opposed to the proactive that you were talking about with the So, okay. so a proactive approach, uh, there's a couple ways uh, that that can be done. It's uh, through forest thinning. So, for example, if we have a community in the far north, for example, you can thin out the forest. You can hire uh, people with you know, chainsaws or, or forest fire rangers to just go in and create fuel breaks, essentially. So you can just clear out a whole section of bush, like a strip, that'll prevent the fire from progressing any further. Or... You can just thin out the forest itself and just take out a couple stems and disrupt the, I guess, the, the, the fuel, right, S- to slow it down. 
aside from that, for for proactive mitigation, yeah, we have uh, prescribed burning, like we mentioned, and uh, well, those are the two main ones, really. Right. Yeah. And, and what has changed from um, the people that actually have to go out there and fight these fires? What's what's changed over the last decade or so, or even while you've been involved? Well, the biggest challenges we have right now is uh, is is retention in the in fire programs. Uh, so it's it's hard to put the blame anywhere really. But you know, with with the higher frequency and the higher intensity of fires, people are getting burnt out a little quicker. It's 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 a great job for university students too. So we'll get students who, who come in and they'll spend maybe about four years in the program, and then they'll leave once they graduate. And because of that, we lose quite a bit of uh, experience and a bit of seniority. And uh, it becomes more and more challenging to address fires um, in a really effective way when we keep losing um, all that experience. Like in the 80s, for example, this was a career job. But now it's, you know, it, no, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to hold on to people right. um, for a number of reasons. You know, yeah, I mean, like you said, one of those reasons is probably just the the frequency of the f how hard and how often they're being called out to fight fires. Correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're away from your family for long periods of time. You know, your your girlfriend or your your husband, your spouse, like they don't they don't want you to be be away for all that long, right? So, right. <laughs> and the and the season has become longer as well, right? Yes, yes, you know. yes. So our, our season extends uh, has extended uh, significantly over the years. Um, so sometimes it's harder to catch a break, and by the end of it, you know, you want to take a whole month off to recover. Right. So, uh, yeah, because I, I was noticing um, earlier this year when I was kind of starting to look at this topic of how late in the season there were fires. And it's still burning in BC. Yeah. Um, and I was quite surprised. I, you know, I, I don't know. We have this mentality as the civilian away from it that, you know, it's July and August. And then that's kind of, you know, it's kind of like a summer thing. And then you realize, well, no, that's not how it really works. Oh yeah. I've known of fires being called out um, on Christmas day. I've known of fires being called no out way, on really? Halloween even. Yeah. Oh yeah. On Christmas yeah. day. Yeah. It, it all depends on how, um, you know how how deep these fires burn. So a big big factor uh, is is the soil layers and the organic soil that's uh, within the area. Because um, like fires will just smolder underground, and uh, they'll even hold over sometimes throughout the winter and pop back up in the spring. We've seen that in Alberta quite a bit actually in the muskegs. How does that work? How does that happen? If it's organic matter, it'll burn, and if there's enough oxygen uh, mixed into that uh, layer of of fuel it'll just smolder and smolder and smolder. So in the muskegs, there's, there can be sometimes a lot of oxygen mixed into that and it'll just smolder underground under the snow and uh, it'll pop right back up. So oftentimes what'll happen is we'll actually get um, lightning fires. We'll find a lightning tree uh, and then we'll put out the fire and then we go back and when we need to do a report, we actually, uh, we have access to these lightning maps and we find the exact strike um, on our map based off of satellite data. And you can actually estimate very precisely when that lightning hit that tree. And I've been on fires where like it hit the tree and it held over for about 20 days underground in the root systems. 
<laughs> and it popped up and that's we only respond when you know when it's you notice there's fires right so when the, a smoke column gets called in or when one of the satellites ping us for example so that that's that's amazing it's pretty well, cool well, these people... are all these things that you know i i would assume that most average people don't know like it's like it's you know the average person doesn't realize that you know there's a lightning strike and then three weeks later you're going out to fight a fire because you know it's been it's been hiding on you under the ground yeah it, they yeah. just they but, always wait for the perfect conditions is it common or is it is that unusual or does it happen frequently enough to you know um, I'd say, uh, I mean, I don't have the numbers and the data. No, no, but just in general, but, anecdotally, I don't, mean, um, I don't mean numbers. I mean, you, you have stories <laughs> to tell. Tell the stories. Uh, so lightning strikes, they they can make up at least 80% of the fires we respond to. That's not right. Yeah, so, so it's a really significant amount. Um, in fact, we can, like oftentimes, we'll, we'll predict exactly when we'll have a, what we call a huge fire flap. So we'll see like on the, you know, satellite or radar data, um, like where thunderstorm will roll through and we'll estimate based on the different indices and the humidity and the dryness of the soil, roughly when we'll start seeing some fires pop up in that area. We'll even take bets on when that'll happen. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> Everything could be a bet, Andrew. Everything. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, <laughs> But yeah, we have some incredibly precise tools that we utilize to, to make those predictions, actually. Um, we use what's called the FWI system, the Forest Weather Indexes. So that measures, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it measures uh, the uh, rainfall in, in the recent uh, days, uh, relative humidity, uh, heat, dryness of the, the soil layers, and uh, it combines all these factors with uh, the local topography and it'll actually give us maps of where we're most likely to see fire starts actually happen. So every morning during our, our briefings, we'll receive one of those maps and uh, we'll be able to kind of tell what areas are most likely to pop off. And in, in many cases, they'll actually uh, send us to those areas in a truck, for example, uh, to be ready re to respond in case anything does happen in that general vicinity. Okay, so one pops off. You're in your truck, you're out there. What happens next? Okay, so uh, there are three ways in Ontario. I can speak for Ontario at least. There's three ways we get to a fire. Uh, most commonly, it's by helicopter, uh, but also uh, we'll have trucks with uh, hose, pumps, uh, and fire gear in them as well, along with fire engines. So pretty similar to you know your regular structural fire engine, but it's uh, more so dedicated to bush work. I'll run you through what happens, let's say, if we're going to something via helicopter. There's obviously, we're just at uh, on base, we're on red alert, and we'll get the alarm. We'll be given a set of coordinates, and me as a crew leader, I'll punch in those coordinates into my GPS, and I'll hand them off to my pilot. And then we'll start flying to the area. Uh, over the radio, the base will give us more detail if they have any on the location, the size of the fire, how it's been detected, who called it in. And then from there, I start making my plan. And we'll keep flying to it until I see the smoke column. Once I see it, I'll call that one in. I'll confirm an actual fire has been found. And then once that happens, uh, we approach the fire and then I begin to devise a plan. So I got to be thinking about, okay, are there people on the scene? Are there what we call values? So homes, for example, or um, forestry equipment. 
Uh, are those on site? Do I need to evacuate anyone? Do I need to call for uh, extra crews? Do I need to call for um, air attack, which could include water bombers or helicopters with uh, water buckets attached to them? Then if none of that is required, or um, we'll just land right away, uh, usually in a, in a clearing uh, on a shoreline or on a bog. Uh, sometimes we've even landed on beaver, uh, beaver dams, <laughs> anywhere where possible. And uh, we'll set up a pump because more often than not in Ontario, there's a lake somewhere we can pump out of. Uh, and then we'll start running hose through the bush to the fire. So we'll have backpacks with uh, about 400 feet worth of fire hose attached to us. We'll just run it towards there. And the goal is to wrap the perimeter of the fire and contain it. That's our number one goal. And uh, sometimes we'll do that in conjunction with uh, water bombers or, or heli buckets. Um, so if let's say the fire is too hot for us to work around, or if it's too uh, intense uh, and too dangerous to be putting uh, people into certain positions, we'll just call air attack and be like, hey, you guys got to take care of this flank. We'll sit back. And then once it's safe for us to go in, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of it. Here in Ontario, and safety is always the number one priority. And, uh, you know, if, if there's a risk of someone injuring themselves, you know what, it's just a couple of trees. We'll, we'll, we'll manage and we'll, we'll, we'll tackle it some other way. And, and so we're, we are in the bush. We're sleeping in the bush until the entire thing is out. So we can actually sleep, uh, camp out for up to 14 days. Uh, we'll just get resupplied with food and resources, but we have our, our tents, we have our cooking setups, we have bug shelters and everything. So what we'll, you, we're there. What do you carry for tools? Like what's your actual, like you, okay. you're telling me you got a, you've got a fire hose in your back, you know, God knows how much that weighs, but 400 feet of fire hose is not like. That's and roughly then, 62 pounds. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then what else, what else are you carrying in there? So um, our, the main tools we use in Ontario uh, are our Mark III power pumps. Okay, so there's the power pumps. Uh, that's a two-stroke. Uh, they, they use the two-stroke uh, motors. And that, that just, we basically plumb the forest with those. But we also have hand tools. So that's, uh, that includes uh, shovels, uh, axes, and pulaskis. So pulaskis, they're basically axes. But on the other end, there's also a grubbing tool for us to grub out, um, you know, roots and dirt. We use that often uh, in mop-up operations. So by the end of the fire, when it's mostly put out, we'll like we gotta also dig fairly deep into the ground to to extinguish those last little remaining embers uh, that are you know billowing up a little bit of smoke. Yeah, we we actually cannot leave until every little single tiny bit of that fire is actually put out. So we'll often use uh, those hand tools and uh, even uh, backpack pumps. So it's, it's basically a bladder with backpack straps. And honestly, it's a glorified super soaker. <laughs> it just allows us to be more mobile and not uh, if we can't uh, rely too heavily on lugging hose through the forest. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's an inch and a half, roughly about this thick. Uh, I know this is a podcast, so I can't really show anyone how thick that is. But um, it can get pretty heavy. And as you can imagine, through thick bush, it can be pretty cumbersome to drag around when it's full of water. So uh, we have a lot of different tools at our disposal, but uh, yeah, th those are the main ones. So you personally, let's say last, last fire season. Yes. Um, if the season ever really ends, <laughs> um, how, how much time do you think, you know, just a rough guess that you spent in the field last, last, year, last <laughs> summer? 
Um, well, to give you an idea, uh, well, it's it's hard to give you an exact number, but I can definitely tell you I spent more time sleeping in the bush than in my own bed. Yeah. Um, at least mm, 70 to 80% of the time I was sleeping, it was in a tent. In a tent. Yeah. Oh, I should add too, uh, the other really important tool that we use is, uh, of course, our chainsaws. We, right. we, also, we often have to use those to take down trees that are at risk. The romance, the romance of the shovel and the Pulaski and the, you know, the other manual tools is much, much better. You know, getting back, you talked about it a little while ago of, you know, how hard it is to keep people. I mean, that's, that's you're right. That's the obvious reason, right? No, mm-hmm. you know, there's dedicated people that want to be outdoors, you know, all the time, but it's not being outdoors for you. It's working. It's being out there and slugging away with a, mm-hmm. you know, a hard job, like a hard physical job. So things, do you see any ways that life could be improved or the job could be improved for people like you that, you know, and I, I assume that's what part of the Canadian Wildfire Network is about, mm-hmm. is, you know, trying to improve the lot of, you know, the people that are doing this really important work. You know, obviously we touched on it. Burnout is certainly a thing, uh, but also it's it's seasonal work. So it can be... Um, somewhat precarious if you don't have a job lined up for yourself uh, right. in the winter, right? Either you do that, you travel, which is not really a thing during COVID, um, or you go on EI. But right. uh, given the kind of people who uh, take this sort of job, they don't really like sitting still and yeah. just, you know, chilling out all winter. So that can definitely be challenging. The finances become not, not necessarily a problem, but it's a less stable form of making a making a living. Um, so as we mentioned with BC, they've actually, you know, in, uh, adjusted their budget and allowed for year round work. Right. Um, and that makes things much more predictable, uh, much more uh, reliable for workers. And uh, I, I see that as a huge, huge um, opportunity for addressing um, retention issues. So longer contracts is a thing. Yeah, that's a big one, right? I mean, yeah. that's the big one because it's stability, right? And where, yeah. you know, no matter what walk of life you're in, you want that stability for you and the important people to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it doesn't happen. It doesn't make the news often. It only really makes the news, especially in Ontario, when some community is at risk. I think people don't necessarily realize how often fires happen in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think just last year we broke, uh, uh, we had over a thousand fire starts. Which, yeah, it was, uh, it was incredible last year. It was crazy. I, we we doubled our five or ten year average. Yeah, well, I took um, I I do a driving trip every year, and the last year usually it's early in the year, and last year it was mm-hmm. in July, and I usually drive out west and then drive home again to take some pictures. And I was I was confronted with smoke all the way yeah. from the time I left Ottawa to the time I got to the Bugaboo Mountains in BC was. Yeah it was smoke was part of what I was seeing. And it was, yeah, we, we really had our hands full, like throughout the entire country. We, we were, we uh, oftentimes what'll happen if let's say Ontario's a little wet and BC's taking off, they'll, they'll ask for us to come over and help them out. But right. no one was able to actually go from province to province. And we actually had um, Mexican fire crews, South African fire crews and Australian fire crews. What have we learned about fires in the last few years? There's, there's, we're constantly learning. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always learning and there's, 
there are so many dedicated researchers and scientists um, involved in this world. And we're constantly looking at this issue from different angles, from uh, social angles, from political angles, uh, from purely ecological perspectives. So there's, there's always new information coming out and there's always new technology coming out to help us in the detection of fire and, and in the management of fire. So I, I do see positive change for the future um, coming from research and coming from people advocating for uh, better fire management. And I, I know for a fact that these agencies are, are, are seeing the change uh, and the, the increase in intensity that, that climate change has brought on. Real, real change is needed, but real change is, is soon to happen in how we manage things. Um, so I am definitely hopeful. What are the things that looking down the road, you know, even a, even a few years, what kind of adaptations are we going to have to make for wildfire fighting? That's, that's a really, really good question. So in, in the world of wildfire sciences, we, we talk about this negative feedback loop. With bigger, more extreme fires, that puts up a lot more carbon into the atmosphere. And with the increase of carbon in our atmosphere, we have yeah. more severe climate change. And obviously with that, more severe fire. So adapting to this, I hate to say it, new normal, is, uh, is, is definitely challenging. Uh, in the forestry world, we're actually starting to plant more, more, forest species, uh, more tree species that are acclimatized to hotter and drier uh, environments further and further north. Um, so that's one way to address things. The other way is being better stewards of the land in terms of how we allow fire to move through the landscape. So it's, I think it, it requires a lot of change in perspective and uh, we're going to need to have people see fire as less of a destructive thing and more of a rejuvenating energy in, in, in the, uh, in, in the boreal forest, how we proactively approach this. I think that's a great answer. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I do. I mean, it's, it's, it's with all this climate adaptation, I think it's, it's basically, it's going to come down to being proactive about mm -hmm. many, many things on many, many fronts. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is, this is one of them. Yeah. A big challenge we face too, is we're seeing more and more people um, build their communities in these fire prone environments. So some of the biggest challenges we have, are dealing with fires that are within the wildland urban interface. So that's a term we use to describe places where, you know, people interact directly with um, pyrogenic ecosystems. So uh, you have a village in the middle of the boreal forest, that's a wildland urban interface. And that makes things very, very challenging for us because we have to deal with evacuations at the same time as fire suppression. Andrew Bass is an ecosystem management technician, the crew lead of a forest fire ranger team, and the founder of the Canadian Wildfire Network. You can find the Canadian Wildfire Network at thecanadianwildfirenetwork.com. That's it for episode four. Thanks to producer Sarah Simpson and social marketing whiz Alina Simpson for their help this week. Our music is by John Sanfilippo from Titan Sound. I'm your host, Bill Alt. Find your way to Northern Latitudes. <laughs>